my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, a podcast where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I am your host, Paco DeLeon, and joining me for this week's conversation is Chantel Chapman. In psychology, there are two notions of trauma, trauma with a big T and trauma with a little t. Trauma with a big T often meets the diagnostic definition for PTSD. Folks who have been in direct contact or were a witness to life-threatening or severe bodily harm, death, sexual violence, repeated physical abuse, long-term neglect, or even first responders may suffer from trauma with a big T. Sometimes because trauma with a big T seems so heavy, some of us might not consider that we have any trauma at all. But before we jump to those conclusions, let's look at trauma with a little t. This kind of trauma can come from things like receiving severe, repeated criticism from a parent, breaking your leg from a car accident, or coming home to find that you were burglarized. I am not a mental health professional, but I don't think you need to be one to understand how trauma can have an impact on daily living. It can reach through space and time 
and direct our behaviors today. I don't want to talk about trauma to help propel a narrative of victimhood for anyone. I want to talk about trauma as a call to anyone that is suffering from it to please seriously consider the work of healing your wounds. It's difficult, but things that are life-changing often are. My conversation with Chantelle Chapman is all about her research and her program called Trauma of Money. This is an online training with a compassionate approach, and it explores frameworks for healing collective and individual traumas in order to create financial safety and well-being. Please enjoy my conversation with Chantelle Chapman. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Paco. I have to say I have this like parasocial relationship with you where I've been following your career for a while now. And I took the Trauma of Money course and I couldn't go to any of the live recordings because, well, I was writing my book at the time, but I've spent hours watching you lecture and interact with students. And so... Forgive my moment of fangirling here, but I'm really just excited to finally connect here one-to-one and to chat with you about all the work that you've been doing. Yeah, likewise. I'm, I'm feeling equally as excited. I'm such a big fan of your book. I recommend it to so many people. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I first want to ask some personal questions about you. One of the things I'm always curious about is when I meet another person who said, I'm going to go down this road and professionally be in the world of finances, especially when it's like another woman that decides to go in a very male-dominated industry. And I want to know, did you study finance and, and how did you get into the industry? Yeah, so I actually started my finance journey at the age of 21. I became a mortgage broker and the choice to become a mortgage broker really had a lot to do with accessibility. So I grew up in poverty with a single mother for a majority of my life. And there was a lot of financial struggling and debt was like really kind of villainized, like debt is bad, even student loan debt is bad. And I just thought it was so, it was not accessible to me. I didn't think that college or university was something that I could even do. And so I was waitressing after high school and every Friday I used to serve this group of successful men. I would be like, what do you do? Like, what is your work? And they're like, oh, we're mortgage brokers. I was like, oh, wow. How'd you get into that? And they're like, well, it's really easy. Actually, you just do this course and it's correspondence. It takes a couple months. And I'm like, are there any prerequisites? And they're like, no. So I did that course and I became a mortgage broker, not because I was necessarily interested in finance. I was interested in whatever would be the opposite of financial scarcity. And because I had this vision of success by serving these men every Friday lunch, I thought it would be a good path for me to go down. Okay. So can you define what a mortgage broker is for our listeners? Yeah. So a mortgage broker works as basically a self-employed person who gets hired by someone who's looking to get a mortgage 
And then what the role of the mortgage broker would be is to shop around all of the different banks, lenders, credit union, find the best mortgage product available, present it to their client. And then they work as like the middleman between the financial institution and the client. And once that deal closes, then the mortgage broker will get paid a commission by the financial institution for bringing them that client. Thank you for walking us through that. I'm really curious. How does one go from, you know, Hawken product to really creating a space and teaching the whole world really about money and trauma? Can you draw that picture for us? Yeah. So I was not a great deal closer or salesperson in my role. I was also so young, like so many people would work with me or think of the possibility of working with me and they would be like, do you even live on your own and you're trying to do my mortgage for me? And so the only clients that I would end up getting were people who were declined. And so they're like, might as well try her as a last resort. What I ended up doing is I ended up helping folks get in a position where maybe in a couple of years they would be approved. So I kind of took on the role of doing like credit counseling and helping people look at budgets and helping them kind of restructure what they could. So in the future, they would be approved. And while I was doing this, I felt pretty activated by it. Like, why do these people not know this thing about credit? And I think I felt so activated because I was in the same position. I was a mortgage broker, but I was filing my taxes late. I had a lot of credit card debt. I was constantly overspending. And I thought, you know what? The solution is financial literacy for teenagers. If I learned about money in high school, maybe I wouldn't be in this position. And I thought that was true for my clients. So I ended up opening up a financial literacy education business where I focused on teaching teenagers. I learned that teenagers weren't super interested in credit or taxes or any of that stuff. And then I pivoted and started working with young adults. And this was at the time where content marketing was starting to become pretty big. Like there was a lot of blogging happy, happening. And this was like right when Instagram kind of first started there were some financial brands that took notice of the work that I was doing and they liked my approach to taking a concept like finance, which might be intimidating and finding a way to deliver it that was more interesting to a millennial audience. So I started consulting for some different finance brands around their content, their educational content strategy. And that really, just kind of took me on a completely different path where I ended up consulting for one of the biggest fintech companies in Canada. And I helped them launch Canada's first ever free credit score, the first digital mortgage experience in Canada. I ran their PR and communications team. I did events for them. I was their PR spokesperson, like their financial literacy PR sp spokesperson. And while I was doing this, I had a great role. I was making really good money. I still had these behaviors around money that I thought financial literacy would fix, you know, like the overspending, the credit card debt. I was under earning and undercharging. I was avoiding my finances. And it was through a couple personal experiences that I had gone through in my life where I was, I really kind of had to face um, my own trauma. 
And while I was facing my own trauma, I started to make the connections between some of the experiences that I had in my childhood and some of the behaviors that I had with my And so I was like, oh, wow, where is this being taught? So I went on this multi-year research journey, um, studying financial psychology, studying trauma, studying addiction recovery. And I noticed that there was some pretty major gaps. There was all these amazing different modalities of healing, but none of them were really talking to each other. So I started to explore how we can bring some of these worlds together. And in that exploration, I had realized that a lot of the clients that I was seeing that were struggling with money, I would ask them, I'm like, what is your, you know, like financial advisor say? And they're like, well, they just keep telling me to do the thing, stick to the budget. And then I'd be like, what does your therapist say? And they're like, every time I bring up money, my therapist kind of like shies away from the topic. And so that is where trauma of money was really created, where it was like, okay, we need to bring these worlds together. And so I identified some gaps. I had built out the trauma of money model, which is that six layered model of what impacts the relationship with money. And then I, I onboarded many different experts to teach at all of those different layers. Okay, before we dig into the program, I want to talk about the word trauma. So before 2015, I hadn't really heard that word that often. Maybe I heard it like on a cop show, but it was about physical trauma. Like I've heard the word blunt force trauma. But then in 2015, actually, I started hanging out with like a bunch of queer people, like this crew of lesbians. And the joke with hanging out with a bunch of lesbians is like, they're really into astrology. Everybody knows their attachment style. And with that also is like this language and understanding of, of trauma and, and all that. So I got exposed to this. And I think it's slowly becoming a lot more mainstream and a lot more normal. However, I still run into a lot of people who feel like when they look at me, they can see, oh, like you're brown, you're queer, you're a woman, you have trauma, clearly, for sure, right? And so I have friends who think because they're having experienced adversity, like to the level that I have, that they don't have trauma. So I have a lot of questions around the word trauma. Like, can we talk about the difference between little t trauma and big t trauma? And then kind of your perspective on, you th- on whether or not you think everyone has trauma. Yeah, thank you so much for this question and sharing a little bit about your experience with it. I I believe that if you live in this dominant culture that we live in, that you probably have some form of trauma. Absolutely, you probably have some sort of form of generational trauma. And we like to categorize trauma into big T trauma and little t trauma. So when trauma was first introduced, They talked about it by the way of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and they really linked that to war veterans. And they started to talk about trauma is related to an external event. So the impact of trauma would be based on someone's subjective feeling of the impact of the event. But as the research started to expand around trauma, they found out trauma is not so much what happened externally, but how your nervous system reacted to something. 
or something that didn't happen to you. So essentially trauma can arise when you're in a situation, something happens or something doesn't happen, and the nervous system is left feeling unsafe or unworthy. And basically your brain is taking a snapshot of that. So anytime you interact something similar in the future, the the brain is going to go into a state of survival as a shortcut to keep you safe. And this categorization of big T and little t trauma, I think is quite helpful for folks to really understand how many people are impacted by trauma. So big T trauma, we would say like an accident, a car accident, or, you know, maybe abuse or, or the war veteran, something pretty big and significant that happens that results in trauma. And then little t trauma can be something like getting bullied at school or your mother is working full time and as a, a infant, she's not making as much eye contact with you uh, as a young child. So there's so many examples of little t trauma, living with a chronic illness, microaggressions that are experienced on a continuous, continuous basis. I really love how Gabor Mate in his new book, he talks about this one example of little t trauma, and he says it's authenticity versus attachment. So the act of selling out your authenticity in order to seek attachment can result in the little t trauma. Wait, can I stop you there? Like, can you double click on that and unpack what that means or give us an example? Yeah, so authenticity versus attachments. So it is a biological imperative that we feel bonded and we, we seek attachment. And sometimes if we've had maybe trauma generationally or, or trauma in our childhood, especially with attachment figures, we may have challenged relationships with attachment. And so what we might do is we might change who we are. We might change our authenticity in order to get that attachment. That desire to create an attachment is so strong that we'll sell ourselves out for it. So one example of this would be like any type of codependent behaviors. So like suppressing angers prioritizing other other people's comforts over your own, acting out on what we call the fawn trauma response. So people-pleasing in order to stay safe or to, to feel worthy and acceptable of receiving that attachment. I'm feeling like hot in my body because I can relate to all of these behaviors and it's taken me many, many years, talk therapy and all sorts of weird stuff to really get to the root of why I was behaving a certain way with my money and what that's connected to. And I really do appreciate that you yourself have gone through this struggle. And so the way that you're speaking about your, you know, these connections, it's not just academic, it's from your own personal experience. So with that, I want to ask you if you can draw some parallels for us in terms of like, can you tell me some of the most common ways you see trauma from the past manifesting in how people behave with their money today? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big things that we see is financial avoidance. So just completely avoiding. And the avoidance happens on many different levels. It can be like not looking at bank statements. It can be not filing taxes. It can be not doing the budgeting. It could 
have no awareness of how much money you spend per month, or even if you're self-employed, no awareness of how much money you make per month. It can be avoidance of important conversations about money. So maybe this is advocating for yourself for a raise. Maybe this is negotiating contracts. This is a really big one that we see. And this shows up because someone is experiencing pain or some sort of narrative around money that feels quite shameful. And it feels best for the nervous system in the moment to just not deal with it. So if we go into kind of the states of the nervous system, this is going to be like freeze or collapse. This is very like hypo aroused is mostly where the avoidance shows up. So that's a really big one. Another form of financial avoidance we see is something called financial rejection. And so many of the folks that interact with trauma of money might resonate with some of this because we seem to attract really incredible people that are highly aware of the world that we live in and are wanting to live a very conscientious life and wanting to create change in the world. And they've seen how much harm has been created around capitalism and colonization and and how this driver for more and more and more wealth and profit first, profit first has exploited the people and extracted from the earth. And there's this sense of like wanting to reject money because they're not wanting to participate in those toxic systems. But what ends up happening is this rejection of money might result in them basically arriving in a place of financial scarcity for themselves because of this rejection of money. So that's another really big one that we see. We see it a lot in not-for-profit world as well. And then the other one we see a lot is what I was talking about earlier, this kind of financial codependency. So fawn response as a trauma response. So the people pleasing as a, as a trauma response. And we see this a lot with identities who have been marginalized uh, historically. And this shows up in ways of under-earning, under-charging, overspending for the seeking of social acceptance. And then even workaholism, like someone being a workaholic, not because they really want to create more wealth for themselves, but because maybe they have a toxic relationship with authority and the employer and they're trying to people please. They think that's the, the uh, validation and the approval of the authority figure. The attachment with the authority figure is what will create safety for their nervous system. So they end up overworking, experiencing burnout and all of these things. So I'd say those are the three main common areas that we see the most. I feel like you're calling me out here, Chantel. I feel uncomfortable about it, but <laughs> I appreciate it. I think it's something I'm I needed to hear. I'm with you. <laughs> I just read you my journal about myself, so. That's <laughs> perfect. I'm not alone then. Yeah. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? 
it's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Dad, I have a lot of questions about money and finance, but I'm afraid to ask because I feel like it's not acceptable to talk about or ask about money. Grandma says it's rude. Oh, Donna, your grandmother is a bit old-fashioned. Times are changing. Even though some people still think it's impolite to ask about money, I think it's important to never be afraid to ask questions about money and finance. Why is that, Dad? Asking questions is the best way to learn and understand important financial concepts. Don't be afraid to ask a financial advisor, trusted family member, or teacher for help and guidance. Oh, I see. That makes sense. Another reason it's important to ask questions about money and finance is to normalize these conversations. Too often, people feel uncomfortable talking about money, which can perpetuate inequality. By openly discussing money and finance, we can break down these barriers and create a more equal and fair society. Thanks for the advice, Dad. I'll be sure to ask questions, do my own research, to find reputable resources, and help normalize talking about money. Now I know! And knowing is half the battle. Weird Finance! Weird Finance! All right, let's let's dig into the program, the trauma of money. I took it or I signed up for it back in 2020 and I learned so much from it. If you've read my book, Chantel's fingerprints are on it. It's all over it. There are a lot of things that you mm -hmm. exposed me to that I had never heard of, I'd never really dug deep into, and I put it in the book. So I just first want to say thank you for creating this program. 
but like, let's dig in. Tell me, tell me about the six pillars of the trauma of money. Yeah. So when, when the whole concept was being created, I started with this question, what impacts the relationship with money? And before I even went there, I did a lot of exploration of other people's experiences. Cause of course, like I only have my experience. I'm a white woman who has access to privilege being a white woman, but I wanted to try and really expand my understanding of what, what's impacting the relationship with money. And I, I put together this six layered map uh, with the help of many incredible people. And what we came up with was these, these six layers. So the first is generational trauma and scarcity. So we used to just say generational trauma, but now we say generational trauma and scarcity because we've seen that, you know, if your ancestors had experienced any scarcity, it can be passed on just like generational trauma can be passed on. And then the next layer is relational trauma or scarcity. So this is trauma or scarcity that is experienced by you in your lifetime. This is typically in relation to someone else or something else. The next layer is societal trauma or societal scarcity. So this is a really unpacking of some of the societal narratives that are really present that may impact what we see as worthy and not worthy, what we see as safe or not safe. Some examples of societal trauma would be capitalism, consumerism. I know you talked about in your book about that documentary on the creation of the consumerism and PR industry with Edward Bernays, Sigmund Freud's nephew, you know, and that documentary, Century of Self, that in itself just shows so many sources of societal trauma. When I watched that documentary, I couldn't believe it when I learned that. And I was like, you know, I, go I had to Google the hell out of it. I was like, is this fake news? Why aren't we why isn't this story being told? It's so crazy that one dude kind of set off consumerism as it is today. And we're all just, you know, we have kind of have our eyes shut to that history. Yeah, absolutely. That's so part of the trauma of money program. We have our, our students watch this documentary and do a write up. And so I get to read all of these amazing write-ups and they all have that same response. Like, why don't people know more about this? It's wild. Yeah. And I just think it's a really, it's a good way to, to get more transparency on like how some of these narratives so subtle can show up. So this is that societal trauma layer. And then the next layer is systemic trauma. So understanding that in a toxic society, systems are created under that toxicity that elevates some and marginalize many others. And this creates trauma for people. I mean, just looking at the data around banked and unbanked or underbanked and someone who is unbanked or underbanked pays 10% of their income just to access banking. And then the next layer we call laws of nature or biomimicry. And this section is a way for us to say, guess what? There are multiple ways to think about being good at money and to define wealth. And what, what other sources can we look to for ways to interact with wealth and resources and abundance? And so we use laws of the nature as the example. Like nature has so many examples of incredible ways to interact with value and resources like the law of reciprocity. 
reciprocity is so beautiful. So reciprocity meaning that there's like a fair exchange happening. And we actually found in some research that reciprocity is something that the nervous system expects. So when reciprocity is not present, the nervous system feels a threat to safety. And when I came across that research, I was like, okay, well, that just proves that extractive capitalism where reciprocity is not always present threatens the nervous system. Yeah, absolutely. Like even when you think about the mechanics of making money in the stock market, how it's extractive from the people who created it with their labor and it moves up to the shareholders, you can't really uncouple that that concept. And yeah. so we're dealing with a lot of sticky things over here, Chantel. Yeah, absolutely we are. Yeah. And friends, as you listen to this, I'm just going to invite you to tap into your access needs. Like, what do you need right now as you listen to this content? Is it some water? Is it, you know, looking outside and expanding your view? And just remember to to prioritize the care of your nervous system as we go into this conversation because it's it can be very like ungrounding. It can can feel like a lot, but we also can have the capacity to listen and engage in this while taking care of our nervous system, while not like cascading more trauma. So little, little disclaimer there for you. Thank you for the reminder. And that is definitely a taste <laughs> of what the program is like. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to know if you can, can you please like tell us logistically what the program, what it's like to go through the program? I would love to tell you, but before I do, I'm just going to finish the six layers because the last layer is financial literacy, and that feels really important. <laughs> and sorry, I yeah. thought I thought we I thought I had written down six, but take it away, Chantal. Oh, that's okay. All good, all good. So financial literacy is super important, but our theory is that it comes last because from what we've seen in the research is when the brain is in an activated state of trauma or the brain believes it's in scarcity, it's very hard to interact with financial literacy, but it's still incredibly important. It's just like, what can you do to get to the place where you're optimizing your access to financial literacy? Wait, can I put a little end note on that? Yeah, please do. So like that looks like you know, when you tell someone don't buy lottery tickets, you're not going to win the lottery and you're wasting your money. They might intellectually understand, I know, but their decision to buy the ticket is rooted in a stress cycle. And because their nervous system isn't calm, because they haven't addressed all these, the root issue of why they're behaving in that way, that right, that scarcity issue, that's why they continue to act quote unquote, like not in their best interest. And so it's taken, it seems like decades of the personal finance industry to really realize like you can't just scream at someone and give them the information. We got to care for one another and realize like shit is fucked up. And it does feel like society is moving towards this healing, like being open to healing and being conscious of the fact that we just can't keep operating the way we've been operating. So I feel like your work screams that and my work definitely screams that. And I don't know if you feel this way, but we're kind of like our job while we're on earth is to just shepherd this message into the social consciousness. And then, you know, that's it. The next generation will pick that up and, and take us further. 
we got to go back and answer the question of what is it logistically like to go through the trauma of money program? How many modules are there? What are the expectations, time commitment, all that fun stuff? So we do it online and we have a spring cohort and a fall cohort. And we have two pathways that you can take. So you can take the personal pathway or the professional pathway. The personal pathway is 15 weeks. The professional pathway is 17 weeks. Everyone's together for the first 15 weeks. We meet once a week online for three hours. All the classes are recorded. So, you know, someone might not be able to come. They can watch the recording. We also have affinity groups for time to share at a deeper level with your fellow trauma of money participants. We have a, a queer affinity group. We have a Black, Indigenous, People of Color affinity group, a professional affinity group, and a general affinity group. So I often find myself like sitting on panels and people think we're going to talk about, you know, how to ratchet up your savings from 10% of your income to 30% in three easy steps or something like that. And I'm, I'm there for that. I want to give people practical advice, but I always come off as a full-blown weirdo in these panels because they ask me like, okay, really like, like what's your advice? And my advice is always so weird. It's always like, well, you should meditate. I'm so, so, so sorry that I am the person walking around society telling people to meditate. And also the one thing that I've been saying to a lot of people is you got to heal your wounds. You got to know how you're wounded and you got to focus on healing them. And so questions for you. Does this program help people get on the path to healing? And if yes or if no, like what advice do you have to help people seek that healing? Yeah. Well, I just want to say, I love that that's how you show up. And I think we need to listen to the weirdos because we will see the significant shifts with that really foundational advice. So thank you for showing up that way. My pleasure. Yeah. So, you know, our program's meant to be a psychoeducation program. So we primarily train professionals who are looking to integrate our method into their work. But we always ask the professionals to come through to test it out on themselves first. And we've heard multiple, multiple stories of people experiencing pretty significant healing around money. I just heard one the other day, which I thought was a pretty incredible story. She was telling me she was on a 12-month payment plan for the course. She was like, I've got one payment left and I'm feeling really sad like, why are you feeling sad? She's like, because every month when that payment comes out, I feel so proud that I am committed and part and participating in this work. Even though the course is like done, she's, she's on a 12 month plan. Our course is only four months. And she's like, it just feels so good to say, like, like to show up and say yes to this new way of interacting with my money. And I'm like, well, that's really amazing. I think that's very positive, a positive relationship to have with your financial commitments. But the incredible part was she then said that I'm also about to apply for a job, which is my dream job, which is double the salary of what I make now. And I've known I want to do this job, but I've, I've always felt like I wasn't worth it. And I see a, a very strong correlation between her relationship with 
like I love making this payment because I see the value and I am going to apply for this job, which is double the amount because I see the value that I'm contributing. It's like a beautiful representation of fully participating in reciprocity. So that's one example. And I, I hear a lot of stories that are sometimes really big and sometimes really small. Like I get, I'll get a message and it's like, Chantal, I have not done my taxes. And today I started doing my taxes and I am so proud of myself. That's a big win. It sounds small, but it's yeah. a big win. It's a huge win. Yeah. My experience with the program is it does feel like a major stepping stone. There was just a lot brought into my consciousness that wasn't there. And then having language around talking about some of my feelings was really important. And I mean, your partner in the program is just adorable hero. And I really just liked that every session started with, you know, breath work or, you know, something that was really grounding. And that really changed my my own perspective. It changed my practice. It's there. Yeah, you just brought a lot of things into my consciousness. And I want to thank you for that. Okay, so my last question for you is people who are listening to this, their ears are perking up. They're also weirded out because like, what a trauma of money course? What the hell is that? Can you speak to the person who this program is designed for? Tell them, tell, tell them who it is. Oh, that's such a hard question because I think it's for anyone who lives in capitalism. <laughs> that's my thought, but obviously I'm really biased. If I'm going to get really specific, we work a lot with mental health professionals or financial professionals, as well as folks who work anywhere in the space of economic justice. Amazing. And so you're also offering a discount for all of our listeners, right? Mm -hmm. It's a 15% off for the next cohort, which is going to be in the fall. And so you can just use the code weirdfinance at checkout to get that 15%. So thank you for being generous with our listeners. Of course. Thank you for all your incredible work. Before I let you go, Chantal, I want to hit you with some rapid fire questions that I know you haven't prepared for. So I'm excited to see what bubbles up. <laughs> All right. So my first question is, is there something that you've purchased that maybe on the outside could seem frivolous or maybe you even judged yourself that it's that it was frivolous, but ultimately it was money well spent? This is such a this is a big, big question for me because I have I definitely have a pattern with my spending where I never would buy anything like over a hundred or two hundred dollars for myself ever but I buy a lot of things that were like a hundred dollars. And I'm gonna say like going on vacations and you know, it seems to be very expensive to travel right now. And you know, I just took a flight on a vacation somewhere and I was so kind of uncomfortable with the amount I was paying, but I just did it. And now I look back, I'm like, I'm so glad I did that. That was so good for my nervous system on so many levels. I feel that. I feel that. We're the same for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you would give to your younger self? To work with boundaries and to really connect to what's important and what's valuable to you 
outside of the influences of everybody else. I love that. Do you have any, or did you have any financial superstitions growing up? Yeah, and I still have it. And it's not to put my purse on the ground because I was told that if you put your purse on the ground, you'll lose money. Yep. (laughs) And so I'm still like, anytime I see someone's bag or purse on the ground, I like run to pick it up. It's fascinating that we hold on to these things, right? Yeah. Really yeah, it is. Interesting. All right. My last yeah. rapid fire question for you is, do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of them, like with certain investments where, you know, like, oh, one time I used the money I set aside to pay my taxes and I put it into a very high risk stock and I lost it all. Whoa. So that was painful. That was really painful. But I recovered. I I recovered and I laugh at it now because like outside looking at it, I was like, why would you do that? That's so it just shows the power of of like social influence because I kept seeing people, you know, do really well with these like high risk stocks. Yeah. So that's when I kind of look back and like, this might make you feel better. So I elected to study finance in like 2006. And we all know what happened in 2008. The banks failed and housing crisis. And I swear to you, right before the banks started failing, you know, I'm like wrapping up my degree. I'm feeling confident. I took an invest investments course and I take a few hundred bucks, which for me was a lot of money at that time. And still a lot of money to just lose. And I went and I I went and bought only bank stocks, like regional banks, like Washington Mutual, only bank stocks. And then I thought I was a genius, right? I got a finance degree. And then that summer, zero dollars. Like bank, the banks I invested in literally failed. And it was so humiliating for me personally to be, to have to know that that happened and to know that I have a finance degree and I lost all that money. But the way that I look at it is, I was just paying tuition. I was paying tuition to learn a lesson and I'll probably do it again another time in my life because like you said, sometimes the news just gets you hype. You think it's going to be you and yeah, hopefully it won't happen again. Well, Chantel, I want to thank you for coming on the show, for walking us through the Trauma of Money program. Once again, for all the listeners, the next cohort for the Trauma of Money course starts this fall. Fall 2023. So to get that 15% discount, use the coupon code Weird Finance. Chantel, where can folks follow along and, and find you? Yeah, I think the best is probably Instagram at Trauma of Money. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. 
Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, Frosty. Hey, Paco. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Oh, it's a beautiful day out here, and I am loving it. Where are we finding ourselves today? Well, we are in sunny San Bernardino, California, where the first McDonald's was opened in 1948 by Dick and Maurice McDonald. Now, while a hamburger would have set you back about 15 cents then, it's about $5.15 for Big Mac these days. And that's not the only thing that's expanded over the years. And I'm not just talking about the average American waistline. McDonald's is the world's leading food service retailer with almost 40,000 restaurants serving nearly 68 million people in more than 120 countries every day. They're also the largest toy distributor in the world, selling over 1.5 billion toys a year. And they have a real estate business with nearly 50,000 acres of land and buildings that's worth more than their restaurant business makes annually. Not to mention an average of one new McDonald's opening every 15 hours. Now, McDonald's is different in every country. In France, on the Champs-Élysées, there's an interior designed by an artist with work in the MoMA. In Japan, you can get a purple potato milkshake. In Sweden, there's a log cabin Mickey D's where you can ski up to the drive through window. Now, Switzerland currently holds the record for the highest average Big Mac cost at $6.71. The cheapest goes to Venezuela at $1.76. Averages in the U.S. alone are all over the place. You can get a Big Mac in Oklahoma for less than $3.50, and in Lee, Massachusetts, it's almost $8. Now, the U.S. is currently at sixth in the world, up about 8% since last year. But I'm going to talk to you about number seven on the list. Lebanon. Now, right now, it's $5.08 on average for a Big Mac in Lebanon. But in 2021, they went from the cheapest Big Mac in the world to the most expensive at nearly $22. How did that happen? Well, that year, Lebanon experienced what economists at the World Bank considered to be in the top three worst economic failures in history. 2018 saw their GDP and only a fraction of their national deficit. So politicians rushed to the rescue and did what they do best. They voted for a pay raise for themselves. This caused foreign creditors to withhold billions of dollars in aid, and in 2019, they defaulted on their loans. 
the onset of the pandemic, as well as critical infrastructure failures, put them in the middle of a perfect storm. The collapse of their currency caused a flood of people to try and withdraw money. Banks shut their doors, ATM withdrawals regulated to about $200 a week or less. Lira salaries were suddenly worth a fraction of what they were before. Overnight, millionaires being thousandaires, and regular people, well, they were just screwed. Now, since 1997, the value of the lira was actually pegged to the dollar at about 1,500 to 1. But that's only the official rate. I'm not sure if you can see the air quotes I'm doing through your headphones, but uh, that's not really how it works there. You see, there's also the so-called dollar rate, which is used to withdraw and deposit money in, in banks. And that's currently set at about 8,000 Lebanese lira to the dollar, which is not so bad if you could actually find a bank willing to give you your money. Then there's also the central bank Serafa rate, which is used by commercial banks and foreign exchange dealers, set at 29,800 lira to the dollar. Finally, there's the parallel market rate, set closer to 40,000 lira to the dollar, which reflects the actual value of the U.S. dollar right now. Now, parallel is just a really fancy and generous way of saying black market. And it's where millions are moving back and forth every day through WhatsApp groups and the backs of barber shops. It's how money is actually getting to the people. To put this all in perspective, in 2021, to buy 100 McDonald's value meals in Switzerland, where it's currently the most expensive Big Macs in the world right now, would cost about 2.2% of the average annual salary. In Lebanon, it would cost nearly 75%. So how did this look for the people? Well, for one, Sally Hafez, a 28-year-old, she was forced to rob a bank with a toy gun to get $13,000 of her family's own money to pay for her sister's medical treatment for her life-threatening cancer. Taking her escape, she made fake Facebook posts about her location, wore homemade disguises, even going so far as to put a bundle of clothes under her shirt so she looked pregnant while she waltzed by over 50 police officers outside her home, and she made her way to her secluded hideout in the desert. When Sally turned herself into the authorities after her sister's treatment, she appeared before a judge who joked that if she got his money out of the bank, he'd give her half of it, and released her on a one million lira bail, roughly about $25 US, the current street rate, or the price of the McDonald's Big Mac and fries. So what's really the value of the lira? What is the value of money at all? What is your value? The truth is the world does not care what the bank or the government says. It's not about WhatsApp groups or numbers on a computer screen. Your worth is determined by the value you place on yourself. And guess what? You are a goddamn miracle. Born out of the beating heart of exploding stars. You decide every day what you're worth and how to use this precious gift we have. We have the power to decide what has value. We decide that some cheap bread and meat and fried potatoes are worth more to us than the price we pay for. That we can keep shelling it out to that golden arched Goliath and sit ourselves in those shitty plastic seats so those smiling lunchboxes can bring us back to a happy little place inside our heads that we turn to for comfort, nostalgia, and the deep fried taste of something familiar. So what makes a Happy Meal cost more than a steak dinner? What makes your friend's board ape NFT collection worth more than a new Tesla? Or a pair of vintage nice piece cost as much as a college education? We do. 
our belief does. And as Sally Hafez said, it's an idea, and ideas don't die. And that's what really has value. This has been The Price Report, where we explore the cost of one thing to try to understand the interconnectedness of everything. Written by Michael Frosty Snow. He's not an economist or a trained financial expert, but he is an award-winning artist who once performed with Madonna, was a cultural ambassador with the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon, and he officiated my wedding. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, which is an iHeartMedia production and could not be possible without the help of many wonderful and caring and hardworking and talented individuals like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you so much to Michael Frosty Snow for his generous reporting about the Big Mac Index in this week's segment called The Price Report. Thank you so much to my friends Jenna Parker and Gabe Senna for lending their voices for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, suggestions, you want to be part of the show, or you want to ask me a question about money, please give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or you can send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. All right, that's it. We'll catch you here next week. And in the meantime, take care. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, guys. You know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.